Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. This WBEZ podcast is supported by the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. Suicide is a topic that hides in the shadows. It's time we talk away the dark, learn how to spot the warning signs for suicide, and how you can have an open, caring, real conversation to help save lives. Visit the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention to watch the new short film and learn more at AFSP.org slash talkawaythedark. Hi, I'm Justin Kaufman, and this is Reset. A state senator indicted for tax evasion. Thousands in the area still without power. And Chicago police gear up for the weekend. All those stories in one segment. It must be time for the Friday News Roundup. There are still 2,300 active outages as we speak. And more than 57,000 customers still don't have power. Longtime Illinois State Senator Terry Link is now charged with income tax evasion. City officials say they're limiting access to the downtown area between 9 p.m. and 6 a.m. through the weekend as part of a citywide strategy to protect businesses. That's after Monday's looting and civil unrest. I call upon our state's attorney and our courts to make sure that these individuals who are arrested and those to come are held accountable. Joining us now to discuss those stories and more, attorney, activist, and WVON commentator Kimberly Agoen. Welcome, Kimberly. Welcome back. Thank you so much, Justin. Nice to be here. Yep, and also with us, WTTW political correspondent Amanda Vinicky. Hey, Amanda. Glad to be with both of you guys. All right. Let's start with Mayor Lori Lightfoot. She's facing a little bit of backlash for her decision to restrict access to downtown Chicago through the weekend. This, of course, a response to the looting and unrest earlier this week after the police shooting in Inglewood. Amanda, what's the latest? We talked with the aldermen in the the first hour, but this seems like they are expecting or anticipating something this weekend. I, I think nobody quite knows when or what is going to happen. It is clear that there are a whole lot of tipped off, concerned, and fearful people, be they those who live in areas that are typically centers of high crime and are fed up with it and want more resources to their neighborhoods in their areas, or be it businesses in downtown, in the loop, along the Meg Mile that pay sky-high rents, or whether they're businesses or people that are living in condos, for example, that say that what has happened now twice this summer, plus during a pandemic, has made the city unlivable. We know for sure that there is at least going to be more protests going on this weekend. That's been sustained throughout the summer, really. But what we don't know is whether these will remain peaceful, whether they will remain violent, and whether the actions by both the mayor as well as the police trying to prevent any of that, things like bringing up bridges and restricting Mm -hmm. access to downtown are going to make people even more angry if it will backfire. Yeah, right. And Kimberly, I know it's optics and it might be, you know, psychological, but the idea of those bridges being up, I don't know. There's there's something about it as a Chicagoan that those bridges connect us. They connect us as a city. Downtown is is available to all. When those bridges go up and it's not some sort of, you know, weather related or, or boats have to come in from the lake, I don't know how to respond to it. It's perplexing to me. Well, and for good reason, Justin. That's a really good question. 
um, because it kind of represents this idea that there is a part of the city that is seen as the crown jewel, which I'm hearing from mm-hmm. so many even media personalities. And people in, who live within the crown jewel or who have their businesses within the crown jewel of the city of Chicago have largely been unaffected by things that have been impacting other people on the south and west sides of the city of Chicago for generations and decades. And now that some of that crime has spilled out, you know, it was really never controlled in the other communities. Now that it has spilled out, it has become the problem of the people who are living in the kingdom. And they're not able to really deal with it right now. And they want it solved and they want it ended. And it's just terrible. They're ready to leave the city. But now it almost had to happen because now they have to deal with the issue as well. When you lift up the drawbridges, however, Mm -hmm. it's not saying that the city is going to deal with it in the communities that have been struggling for all of this time. It's really telling the city that we are going to just protect this part of yeah. the city. So cuts, it's a, cuts it off, very right. Insulted by. Right. Mm-hmm. On the other side of the coin, you could say, well, if it takes a Gold Coast resident to come out and say, I'm going to leave, I, I feel unsafe, and the media is just, I don't know, a condition to listen more to what they have to say because of wealth or, or class or whatever it might be, a race, does that help? I mean, in the sense that maybe that could draw more attention to what's happening in Chicago in some of the neighborhoods that don't necessarily get that attention? Well, that remains to be seen. What is going to happen besides lifting up bridges? What is going to happen in the other communities to stop criminal activity? I don't think many people would agree that that type of looting is a good thing. It's a terrible thing. It's a criminal activity, right? But what is going to happen to protect people on the south and west sides who've had to live with lots of crime that has gone completely unanswered by the Chicago Police Department? Mm -hmm. Amanda, it's interesting. Earlier in the week, the first, I mean, really the first day, I think it was Monday morning, you saw the police superintendent, David Brown. You saw the mayor of Chicago demand accountability, demand justice, and really lay the blame at the feet of the Cook County State's attorney, Kim Fox. When called out on that, the, they said, oh, don't try to bait us or don't try to get us into a political fight. But that's what they were saying. They were saying they want uh, the criminal justice system to be tougher on crime, even without giving any factual evidence for this. Yeah, that was very bizarre when a question from a reporter, frankly, that was a follow-up to statements that the mayor and superintendent had made. The mayor snapped back at reporter, it was Craig Wall of Channel 7 ABC. You, you said this. That was frustrating, I think, as a journalist because it was a very fair question. Mm-hmm. Frankly, if you're, you're mayor, pretty much anything is fair game. There's little that is outside the bounds, but that certainly was not it because it was a follow-up to statements that she had made that were very accusatory toward Kim Fox and which led Fox to follow up with a press conference of her own. So in addition to that being frustrating, I I think for me as a journalist to say, hey, wait, no, you don't get to say what questions you do and don't want to answer. You answer them. We ask them. That's how this works. I also think that it was frustrating because at this point, it's enough to stop pointing the fingers. I think as Kimberly said, it is time for solutions. Mm -hmm. These are people that are elected to lead. There is a general election going forward, and Republicans have a candidate for a state's attorney that is running a race against Kim Fox. That's former Judge Pat Mm O'Brien. But let's be clear, Chicago hasn't had a Republican in that office since, I think, the the late 90s, and there's very limited to no expectation that Fox isn't going to keep her position. Jack O'Malley, I think, yeah, right, the state's attorney last time, right? 
figure it out. Right. Uh, I want to play a clip of uh, State's Attorney Fox because she was on the program on Tuesday. Here's a clip of what she had to say about her approach to criminal justice reform. We started implementing criminal justice reform at the end of 2016. And in 2017, we saw violent crime drop. 2018, violent crime dropped even more. 2019, violent crime dropped even more. So the facts and the data support that you can, in fact, and you must, in fact, have justice reform and public safety. Yeah, and and Kimberly, I mean, obviously it's been an unprecedented summer. We've seen crime go up, uh, the homicide numbers for June and July, historic. But the idea that you're going to push this and put this at the feet of, of the state's attorney who, what she talked about, facts back that up. How does this kind of play out politically? But but beyond that, just as it's creating these narratives that it's because of our criminal justice system that there's more crime. Well, I have to agree with Amanda on the, the idea of when the mayor said, don't bait us, because actually Kim Fox didn't take the bait. She did not throw it back at the Chicago Police Department when the rest of us, when we're looking at this, there are very few people who are arrested for the crimes. I mean, they're getting people for looting now, but there are very few people who are arrested for the crimes. And that is where the whole chain reaction begins with criminal justice. She could have easily said that to the mayor as well as the Chicago Police Department. Um, Right now, we just have to continue to watch and see what is going to happen as far as people being arrested and following through with the criminal justice system in order to get some of the criminals off of the street. Mm -hmm. So I think that she did a good job of kind of shifting it back without throwing anyone under the bus, because I think she kind of was thrown under the bus earlier during that first press conference. The whole idea of the Monday looting, the Monday morning looting, it was sparked by a police shooting in Inglewood. And the mayor's acknowledged that the officer who shot uh, 20-year-old Latrell Allen was not wearing a body camera, right? And police superintendent David Brown said there aren't enough body cameras to go around. I want to play that clip real quick. We have been and will continue to look at scrubbing the inventory of body cams so that we can redistribute uh, a contingent of body cams to some of these teams that were created, officers who were at one time playing clothes and now are in the neighborhoods and patrolling. Amanda, how does this happen? What's your reaction to that, to hear the police superintendent say it was really just, you know, we just didn't get the equipment out there? Certainly at a time that not only tensions are high, but skepticism is high between residents of Chicago and the people who are charged with policing them. This does not help that matter, whatever the reason. I don't care if there is a valid excuse or not. This does not help the situation, particularly when you look at that standoff in Englewood where people say, I believe, the brother of the man who, by the way, Latrell Allen, has been charged, including with attempted murder, because police say that he was shooting them. When you have community residents and his own brother saying, hey, wait, that didn't happen, you need body cameras. And there are police who say we should all have them, Mm -hmm. not just for the protection of people, but our own protection. By the way, the reason that the city says this officer did not have a camera is because of some switches that have been made within the force trying to, in fact, get officers into communities and that there just aren't enough cameras to go around. Okay, but Kimberly, this is Chicago. We've we've gone through a lot in the last couple of years. Uh, Laquan McDonald comes to mind. Uh, the consent decree saying that there need to be body cameras, that the rules and the trainings and, and engagement have to change. The idea that this is an isolated incident, it's not anymore. The fact that this happened in Inglewood is a direct line to what happened in downtown Chicago on Monday morning. The idea that there are no body cameras available and the excuses that they're, well, we were just changing uniforms. 
I don't understand how we're supposed to take that. Well, the way that you take it is the way that you would take anything that is a law or a rule because the Chicago Police Department, they were supposed to have the officers with dash cams and body cams. We have seen police officers remove the batteries out of the body cams. We have seen police officers put them in upside down in the dash cams. And you've mentioned something that no one really talks about, and that's the consent decree. I mean, are we even operating under a consent decree anymore? We've missed, as a city, every deadline that was imposed for the consent decree, which I'm sure probably in some form uh, has a clause about wearing body cams. There is no trust from the community with the Chicago Police Department, and then you add on the idea that if they're supposed to have body cams, they show up, they don't have them on, or they turn the sound off, or they turn the batteries backwards. How can you have trust in this administration? And put it on top of this is the mayor who ran to say that she was going to be progressive and she was going to make sure these things happen. She's a former chairman of the police board. There is no acceptable excuse for this to continue happening in the city of Chicago. Yeah, and and just to be clear, I mean, they, they missed seventy percent of the deadlines, not all of them, but they missed seventy percent. They had a, a hearing in front of the public safety committee and, and city hall this week. We talked about it yesterday, but the, but you're absolutely right. I mean, you know, I don't want to make it just about the police department. It's also about the city of Chicago. I mean, they they entered into this as well, and there seems to be this, I don't know, like it seems to be a lot of speak. Right. And then maybe that's where we're at, that there's not a lot of action. There's and just and there's just a lot of speak. Well, Justin, they preempted this. The idea of the body cams came even before the consent decree. When Mayor Emanuel was attempting to kind of head off even having a consent decree, they came up with the idea we're going to have body cams, right, dash right, cams and all right. of that. So that's even before the consent yeah. decree. Our panel, WVON commentator, attorney and activist Kimberly Agowen and also WTTW political correspondent Amanda Vinicky. All right. In Springfield this week, Amanda, a lot of observers knew something was coming, but State Senator Terry Link indicted for tax evasion. That has much more to do with, uh, you know, cheating on your taxes. That has much more to do with with a scandal that's been brewing there for a while. Yeah. So first of all, I would like to say I, I am intrigued by the actual charge of tax evasion, given that According to the charges, the feds say that in 2016, longtime Senator Terry Link, he's been, by the way, a senator since 97. He also was notably the chief architect of the gaming expansion that's going to eventually supposedly bring Chicago Casino as well as his hometown of Waukegan. But he evidently reported on his tax forms making more than a quarter million dollars, but the feds say he made substantially more than that. What's interesting is if you look at his economic disclosure forms that are filed with the state, he didn't list that. So this gets to, I think, really a lot of questions about ethics and government and politics. Where did that money come from and why did he not report it? So that gets to your original question, Justin, is was it not reported because there's something fishy there? And why this had been known is because WBZ has reported, despite Link's denying it, that Link was the one who, in cooperation with the feds, wore a wire to get former Chicago Democratic State Representative Luis Arroyo on tape offering him a bribe. That's amazing so, to me. Ooh, That's still, to yeah, me, is still like stuff. such a colorful story because, you know, when you think about that, most of the time you, you'll get busted for, you know, accepting a bribe. In this case, it was the other way around, right? It was, it was he was trying to get someone to bribe. It's it just a weird way that they did that. But what this stinks of is that there's some federal cooperation in some way, that whatever he's working on when it comes to Representative Arroyo and the red light cameras and everything else that might be involved with this, 
that at the end of the day, this is some sort of plea deal. And adding to the intrigue is that up until we believe actually yesterday, the statement that we got from the Senate president's office didn't give any sort of timeline. But we believe that it was up until yesterday when these charges were filed that Link was a member of the State Legislative Ethics Commission, which is the body that decides whether there has been a report deemed worthy of an inspector general looking into ethical misconduct on the part of a member of the Illinois General Assembly. So who knows when Link was wearing a wire and what conversations, therefore, the feds may or may not have been privy to. It blows my mind that the feds would continue in an investigation and let him sit on an ethics committee. And there's ethic reforms coming out this week. Are they tied together at all? I mean, did they see this kind of coming and that's why uh, they started talking about ethics reform in Springfield? I think that this is tied to the many layers Link is the fourth sitting state legislator that has had federal charges filed against him in the past year or so. So that is where you had a coalition of Democrats come out with an ethical plan. By the way, I don't think that is the first or the last package of ethical proposals or ethics proposals that we are going to see. What I think was one of my main takeaways from that conversation is, yes, that some of the measures would have affected Link, for example, strengthening economic Mm -hmm. disclosure statements and also saying term limits and getting people that are involved in some sort of criminal conduct and that have been named an investigation would no longer to be able to hold positions of leadership as Link did. But what was also notable was a reluctance on the part of some of the legislators that embraced that plan to make any sort of comment on where they believe, despite being Democrats, they believe the chairman of the Democratic Party of Illinois, obviously Mike Madigan, where his future should lie with the party in the House. You know, Amanda, it's funny to think about uh, that this would be the DNC. This would be the time where in Milwaukee where the Illinois delegation would all get together if it wasn't for COVID-19. And Mike Madigan is the chair of the Illinois party, and it would be interesting to see that he would be dodging reporters left oh, and right in, in a Milwaukee hotel, right? In person. It's just not the same over Zoom. <laughs> it really isn't. Kimberly, power outages continue four days now after uh, the huge windstorms and tornadoes touched down all over the Chicago area. We've talked about it here on the show of some neighborhoods on the the north side of Chicago that are still without power. I saw the story yesterday that there are still a couple of south suburbs, full suburbs, Dalton, Harvey, South Holland, that are all without power. And those areas may not be as well off as some of the neighborhoods who can jump from other places to go to grocery stores. They have to go miles to find stores and and things that are open. This is unprecedented in the sense that this storm was huge, but the cleanup has taken forever. And what has been a theme, it's just not equitable, the way in which certain communities are um, responded to. You can add Markham to that list. Mm -hmm. You can add Park Forest to that list. There are people living in those communities who probably need oxygen. I don't even know what they are going through right now. So the question uh, remains, uh, how do you make sure there is some equity even in the face of crisis? I'll give you another example, totally different, uh, not dealing with electric, but Mercy Hospital, which is slated to close during COVID-19 when black people have been shown to disproportionately die more than everyone else and black women are shown to die during childbirth at six times more than anyone else in the state of Illinois. It's one of only three birthing centers on the South Side. It's slated to close during COVID-19, so it makes you wonder 
who's making these decisions? Who's deciding where ComEd goes? Who's deciding that this hospital should close? There just has to be more of a concerted effort on behalf of elected officials to take care of the constituencies that they were elected to represent. And that means really getting at ComEd because ComEd is not even in the good graces of pretty much anyone right now. They should be the first people out there trying to restore power to absolutely everyone. Well, and, and, you know, we talked about this a couple weeks back when it was the anniversary of the Chicago heat wave. How prepared the Chicago area is for another disaster. Here comes this uh, huge storm. The ratio comes through. It blows it out. and, And we're seeing these disparities. I mean, it's startling to see the suburbs that we talked about. And I watched one of the news reports last night in the 10 o'clock news to see just darkness, no stoplights, no stores open, nothing. And people having running out of food and food uh, banks being set up in the high schools. I mean, this is this is a real uh, situation. And again, it doesn't seem like it's getting that much press. And is that my youth during the pandemic when everybody is supposed to stay home, not interacting, not having to hopefully right. go out and forage for food at a time when temperatures are up. So it's not heat wave hot. I mean, it's a summer in Chicago, but it's hot. And of course, when people in many cases, their jobs and connections to other human beings. So there, you, I don't think you can ever forget the mental health component yeah, that absolutely. so many people are going through at this point in time when your, your sole connection to others and perhaps to a paycheck is over the internet. So true. Yeah. And, and, and as we look at this, I mean, the comment says that they're working around the clock and, and they want to get this stuff done by the weekend. But when you see some of those situations, it's pretty startling. Another area, Kimberly, is just watching the COVID-19 cases rise in Illinois. Uh, I think yesterday it was over 1,800 new coronavirus cases, 24 deaths. But we've officially surpassed the 200,000 cases since the pandemic began. Illinois, at the beginning, was getting uh, high marks for how we're handling this. But I think the virus is showing us that it really doesn't matter how we prepare for this thing. It's going to come wave after wave. Amanda, I'm not still there? sure. Yeah, yeah okay, I, I will say. So interesting uh, along those lines, Justin, notable to point out that this week there is a new mask order in effect that would penalize businesses after first some, quote, education and a warning. And this is statewide because there are, of course, pockets of the state or leadership within pockets of the state. You, you don't want to know particular population uh, is a monolith, of course, but there are leaders within certain areas of the state that have been reluctant to abide by the governor's orders. And in fact, really, as we speak, um, had a judge in Clay County in central slash downstate Illinois had his way, we would have been having another very, I guess, entertaining um, (laughs) something to cover in that would have been he wanted to hold Pritzker in contempt for continuing with orders meant to prevent the spread of COVID-19 and literally wanted to put the, the the governor in jail. And that got moved out of Clay County into Sangamon County Court. So that did not come to pass. But uh, you're right, Justin, that we're, we're continuing to see those numbers tick up. Everybody's got their eye on the positivity rates. And hopefully everybody that is looking at that with their eyes has their noses and their mouths covered yeah. because this is a menace that's not going away. Uh, that's Amanda Vinicky from WTTW, also with us, WVON commentator, attorney, and activist Kimberly Agoen. The state panel on Tuesday approved a rule that meant you could get up to $2,500 fines for businesses that don't require face coverings. What do you think about that? There's something to be said that that's the drastic measures that have to happen when we're dealing with a pandemic. But there's another to say, these businesses are hurting, Kimberly. Yeah, they're hurting. But here's the thing. I don't know that it's that much of a stretch to tell a business 
rather than people on the street. You know, you control who comes into your business, and they need to have a face covering, you know, some type of face covering. So I think that that was a better ask than when the governor is asking police officers to enforce a rule mm-hmm. or the sheriff, and there are counties that have made it very clear that they are not going to enforce the rule, but you still have to keep people safe. You know, the state has done a great job, uh, especially considering the idea that there is no vaccine. All you can do is get treatment. You can't stop people from being exhausted from staying away from each other. The economy has to continue. COVID has not gone away. So this is just the position that we're in, and I don't think that that is that much of an ask. Yeah. As we wrap up here, let's switch gears, talk about a major national story. California Senator Kamala Harris is the VP nominee for uh, Joe Biden in the, in the Democratic ticket in 2020. Kimberly, your reaction to Kamala Harris? Well, um, she's been on the national stage. She definitely can hold her own in the debate. Um, She kicks off the box as far as, you know, black women being one of the largest voting blocks in the United States and definitely the foundation of the Democratic voting bloc. There are some um, glaring issues with her former record as a prosecutor, but overall, it probably was one of his strongest picks. Amanda, one of the one of the stories for the Democratic Party has been Senator Tammy Duckworth. She was uh, rumored to be a finalist for the VP pick, and now she's going to have a big profile spot at the DNC, the virtual DNC, next week. And this has really gone a long way to raise her profile as a senator in Illinois. Yeah, it has, and it's interesting to have heard, actually, when the Illinois Democratic Party leadership met, actually in real life, although I watched it virtually, (laughs) um, you heard Senator Dick Durbin, the senior senator, talk about how he had sort of met her while she was actually hospitalized after her injury and at that point said, hey, what do you think about running for office? And how her career was launched then and has, of course, been so elevated. So I'm guessing that it won't just be on the national stage. Should Biden win the presidency, there are many expectations that she could for example, be given a cabinet position. You saw it happen. Um, Blagojevich chose her to head the Veterans Affairs Administration here in Illinois. Yeah. And Kimberly, it's interesting, too, because it seems like every time there's a Democratic National Convention, it's time to take the temperature for both the uh, – when it's the Democrats and the Republicans and of how the delegation looks, how strong it is. Illinois looks pretty good right now. The governor has got a pretty high profile. The two senators, Duckworth and Durbin, have pretty high profiles in, in Senate, the, the Illinois delegation. I mean, it's – as we look at and take stock of what the Democrats look like uh, in Illinois, they'll be a factor when it comes to the 2020 election. Definitely. And it'll be this particular convention is going to be so strange, but it'll be as much of a love fest as it can be via Zoom. And I think definitely they will be rallying together. But don't count out the Republicans because they have Mm -hmm. a lot to fight for, a lot to fight for when it comes time for their national convention. And as we know, they are fighters. And right now it's it's obvious. I mean, the the air in the room gets gets filled uh, and sucked up by the Democrats when they make their announcement. But you're absolutely right. In in a week's time when the Democratic National Convention is over, all eyes will turn to the Republicans, and they are the incumbents. When we talk about mail-in voting, and we'll wrap here, Amanda, this is something that's become so divisive. It's to the point where we're talking about funding for the post office. This is something that um, is surprising only in the sense that we already do mail-in ballots and mail-in voting in this country, and we have for years, and even the president himself does mail-in voting. So uh, this is becoming a political story about how we actually cast our votes. A political story, and then I do think there is the actual story. So Republicans in Illinois, first of all, 
we have had mail-in voting and no excuse absentee voting for about a decade now in Illinois, but we have not seen it at this level. So that's what I mean when there's an actual story in terms of the logistics of this. It is a significant ramp up. Again, P.S., during a pandemic when you have many clerk employees that are going to be charged with doing this, working from home, and on top of the issues with the Postal Service and the political ones. So what really I think this means is that people need to know if they do plan to vote by mail instead of in person, they need to send it early. They need to be watchful for who they're getting mail from and looking to see who's paying for it, if it's going to be the Secretary of State or a county clerk versus a political party or some sort of PAC. Mm -hmm. They need to be on guard for that. And then also, it is just the matter of making sure all of the elected officials charged with carrying out the election, because they're could very well be, unfortunately, questions about the integrity of the election, given the politics that yeah. you've mentioned. And my final point, and I don't really have, we don't. it's really a kicker story. You heard that uh, Cheryl Ray Stout in the first hour said that the, the St. Louis Cardinals are coming to Chicago, and they're, they're all driving. They rented 41 different cars to drive here because they can't all be in one space because of all the positive COVID-19 cases with the team. Caravan, <laughs> Cardinals caravan. A Cardinals caravan of a different yeah, nature. Yeah, that sounds like the dangerous caravan. Maybe they should stay home. <laughs> Where are they going to get past? They can't get past the bridges. So I don't know how they're going to get to the the park. Right. All right. Well, that's it for the Friday News Roundup. Thanks to our panel today, WVON commentator, attorney and activist Kimberly Agowen, and also WTTW political correspondent Amanda Vinicky. Kimberly, Amanda, thanks so much for uh, joining us. Have a great weekend. You too. And go Sox. Well, that's it for Reset. I'm Justin Kaufman. Check us out on Monday. Have yourself a great weekend. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.